Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bio-Age and Live Longer, Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieve this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections, or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bioage by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing, doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-scenes adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bioage assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. Both of these drop January 18, 2022. Please see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. Um, this month, I am talking to Dr. Jed Fahey. You may, uh, you may have witnessed his amazing IFM AIC lecture this year. In fact, that's what uh, lighted me to his work. And then actually he did a great series with Rhonda Patrick. So if you want to do an extensive drill down into his work, you could, you can uh, look at that series of podcasts. Um, so there's much to talk about. So I'm not going to digress too much. Let me just give you his bio and we'll jump right in. Dr. Fahey is a nutritional biochemist with extensive background in plant and human nutrition and phytochemistry. Uh, he was assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medical School, where he directed the Coleman Chemo Protection Center, a leading center for the study and development of plant-based 
protective agents. He had faculty appointments in three departments at John Hopkins School of Medicine and Public Health, where he conducted laboratory and clinical trials, taught grad courses, and mentored students since 1993. He spent the first 15 years of his career in agriculture, biotechnology research, and industrial process development. Dr. Fahey retired, in quotes, uh, in mid-2020 to focus his attention entirely on outreach and educational efforts, which include podcasts, writing, and lecturing widely. He maintains adjunct appointments at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere, uh, and he may be available to consult for socially responsible food and supplement companies and foundations. Uh, Dr. Fahey, Jed, welcome to New Frontiers. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kara, uh, Dr. Fitzgerald. Um, I'll call you Kara for brevity, if that's okay. And uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to to join you. You uh, you reach the kind of audience that I uh, really like talking to. Yes, yes, yes. And you're and and we're we're really grateful that we found you. I'm so appreciative that Christy Adamo, you know, got you uh, uh, speaking. I'm, I'm assuming he, he brought you into the AIC this year um, at the Institute for Functional Medicine. And I know that your I was in your talk. Your talk was, was very well received by our audience. Of course, we're sort of born from nutritional biochemistry, you know, being, uh, you know, Jeff Bland being one of the founders of, of the Institute for Functional Medicine. And so we just really appreciate your thinking and I'll say, and then I'm going to shut up and jump into questions, not just, you know, your nutritional biochemistry thinking, but this whole sustainability position that you've, you've taken and you've expressed in your writings. And folks, as always, the show notes will be packed with Dr. Fahey's um, uh, uh, commentaries and, and we'll, we'll pop some of his uh, key studies and so forth up there. So talk to me broadly. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you're, you're too kind, but thank you very much for, um, uh, for your introduction. <laughs> you're welcome. But tell, so tell me what's missing in our current understanding of human nutrition. Um, in a word, I would say phytochemicals. Um, and this is in part, um, it's not because I'm a vegan, I'm, I'm actually not, um, although I'm uh, primarily, I'm plant forward or mostly vegetarian uh, or facultative vegetarian, but um, <laughs> I very strongly believe that we are missing um, a huge part of what's required to, for health span, to yes. live, live a healthy life for a long time and then just don't wake up one day when you're 100, yes. you know, 95, 110, pick your number. Um, because as everybody knows, everybody that's listening, I'm sure we, we are killing ourselves by over, overlapping chronic diseases that accumulate reduced quality of life and make the end years or decades of life uh, not as much fun as they should be. So, yes. yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of the, 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 I guess my justification for saying we haven't got, we haven't gotten it right. I'm yes. certainly not the only one to think this, but I think that phytochemicals, which are, which have been called, I love this term, the dark matter of nutrition. Right. Um, I, I, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. I, I think they are the key and the yes. estimate of how many phytochemicals there are 
in our diets or in, in, an, in, a, in a good, rich diet or in the plant, the edible plant world is something I'd love to, I don't, I don't want to hog the mic, uh, let you no, hog it. comment, but I, I'd love to dive into that uh, and, and sort of pose that question in a minute. But yeah, it's, it's what's missing in nutrition, phytochemicals and an appreciation for their, um, their potency, their power, their ability to nurture uh, health. And just just one more thing. Well, well, there are only two of us fighting for the microphone. So uh, just not. one more thing while I have the floor here. And that's, um, you know, there, there is uh, there there is this uh, idea that you can you can live on vitamins and uh, vitamins and minerals and uh, macronutrients, meaning proteins, carbohydrates and fats and 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 maybe fiber. And that's exemplified by this company, Soylent, that, uh, not Soylent Green, that was an right. old Charlton Heston movie, but Soylent was a bottled, sp supposedly complete nutrition product that was marketed about five years ago. We used to talk about it in the classes I taught. And people, this was for people who didn't like to eat, didn't want to take the time to eat, and they were supposed to be able to consume, I think, five bottles of this garbage uh, a day. And people did it for months at a time without any other food. Right. I challenge any of those people to live a healthy lifespan, to start doing that at age 20 and make it to 100 without chronic diseases, because those things were completely devoid of phytochemicals. Right. Okay, I'll stop. It's just, it's just a, well, you know, that's extraordinary thinking about it. First of all, what a creepy name, thinking mm -hmm. about the movie. But um, totally. Uh, you know, it just makes me think of infant formula and when we, you know, transitioned from breast milk into thinking that formula was best or, you know, uh, processing grains and so on and so forth and all these myriad kind of crazy things um, that we've done in the name of, of, of progress that we always discover are, are um, you know, pretty, in, are really insane. And it makes me think too of, you know, as a clinician in practice, we prescribe elemental diets occasionally for people who are really unwell and they need something that's very bioavailable in a powder form or something like that. And, and there are better, much better designed elemental diets today, but back in the day, they were probably, you know, they were kind of like soylent or even, even worse. So, yeah, so there's this whole class of, of phytochemicals. I, you know, I'm going to say this and then I then I'm just going to hush because you're you're touching upon an area that's interesting and that I've been thinking about a lot on which is the compression of morbidity that James Fry's con concept where we basically live a really long time we live robustly our brains are intact our bodies are mostly intact and then you know we pass on but when we look at when we look at what's really happening, I, I, you know, statistically, I know that the final 16 years of most Americans' lives are, are, are spent with multiple illnesses and, you know, on a lot of different drugs and all of our, you know, our faculties are compromised or gone and, you know, all of our, our say, our inheritance or our money is given to, you know, pharma and hospitals and nursing facilities, et cetera. So we're propped up. Yep. We're not really alive. 
And you're saying, and I'm going to turn the mic back over to you, but you're really talking about phytochemicals as being a key difference between, you know, a, a compression of morbidity, as, as Fry's talked about, or, or, you know, the current, you know, health span, or, or not health span, the current lifespan, which, you know, might be longer, but most of our final years are spent in really deep suffering. You want to just speak to that? Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, you used the word, you used the words lifespan and health span in the same sentence. And yeah, I, so I don't think that phytochemicals, and I don't, I don't, I suspect, I mean, you go back to uh, Carol Greider and Elizabeth Blackburn and telomeres, um, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't think anybody is seriously saying that we're going to extend lifespan beyond some predestined genetically ordained number and somewhere north of 100 years old. But um, health span, I view as and and uh, I mean, we've various people define it slightly differently, I guess. But I view health span as, you know, the quality of life within a lifespan. And so it's so I, you know, the nomenclature is is can be confusing. And I trip up on it myself sometimes. But I, I think if we talk about enhancing or um, enhancing or improving health span it's sort of a it's sort of a multiplicative function of years on the on the x-axis and quality of life on the y-axis and actually on my website i think i've posted um, a figure that that uh sort of puts that in graphic form and i know that we talked about it in um a paper that Tom Kensler and I very recently published. It was yep. uh, sometime this spring, and and we we talked about the the essential the essentiality, if you will, of phytochemicals in enhancing health span or making the life that you do live better. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and and a lot of our, you know, we we actually thought this was going to be a sort of short opinion piece that we wrote and it was it was going to be a no-brainer and we wound up doing a lot of digging into the literature to make sure we knew what we were talking about and it is remarkable when you look at the um you look at all of the phytochemicals that have been studied you know go to scopus or pub i i prefer using scopus because it seems to embrace the plant and ag side of things a little bit better than PubMed. But um, you know, you 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 quantify the number of papers on each of the sort of top, and we 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 actually published this, the top 40 phytochemicals uh, that are that get most research attention. Um, it's quite interesting. And then we contrasted that with the number of clinical trials that were done for each of them. And one of the conclusions that we came to, which um, I suppose is a no-brainer. We we probably should have thought of this before we started. Um, is that because there are so many phytochemicals, and because it's so attractive to researchers to, you know, pick a different one to do a study on, whether it be a lab or a animal or a, or a clinical study. There's been there's been sorry a, a plethora of studies on phytochemicals. Sure. Um, but there hasn't been a concentrated, certainly not a policy-driven focus right. on specific phytochemicals, because sooner or later, 
those clinical trials, as you know, get damned expensive yeah. and um, you, you can't do high quality, you can do low quality clinical studies and that's awful, but you can do high quality clinical studies on a relatively small number of compounds. So uh, I, I think Tom and I came to the conclusion that this diffusion of attention is in part responsible for the fact that um, remarkably, the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans, that, that Bible of nutritionists, of the nutrition establishment anyway, um, does not mention the word phytochemicals or phytonutrients or anything like it once in the whole, whatever it is, 135 pages. I was shocked by that. And then I went and looked at some other sort of large compendiums, uh, you know, with all the great gray-haired minds of, of nutrition and discussion of the benefits of phytochemicals are missing. And, you know, part of the reason I don't, I, I don't think it's because all of the, the wise, I'll say gray-haired, but um, all of the wise nutritionists of the world, I, I, I don't think they completely ignore phytochemicals, but they can't point to definitive clinical studies or, you know, meta-analyses um, as they can with things like vitamin D and vitamin C and, and, you know, various specific conditions. They can't point to compelling evidence that will allow them to step over the line and put their reputations on the line and say, you know, pick a phytochemical, resveratrol, sulforaphane, N-acetylcysteine, whatever, that, that it may be valuable um, to, to ensure you have in your diet. Anyway, time it's, for me to shut up a minute. It's the, well, I mean, just thank you for laying that out so starkly and painfully, really, <laughs> you know, it this is, omission. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, and I appreciate you sort of quote retiring and shifting your focus entirely to getting attention on this issue because you're you're absolutely right that it's essential. And I just want to quote you. So we'll link to the paper that Jed just mentioned. This is this was March 2021 in Food Frontiers. Phytochemicals, do they belong on our plate for sustaining health span? And you say in that an extraordinary multitude of phytochemicals have been shown in preclinical settings to be potent allies in our fight against the entire spectrum of chronic diseases and many acute conditions such as infections. And then you go on to say that, you know, you, of course, the, 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 the research happening right now is, is woeful for, for the reasons you've just outlined um, and that we need art artificial intelligence and machine learning and metabolomics and, and all of the omics and so forth to really drill down into these compounds to see their utility. And then, you know, when I was reading this, of course, I was thinking, yes, of course, we need to do this deep drill down into this, into the beautiful spectrum of phytochemicals, many of which, you know, you describe as dark matter. We don't even, you know, know who they are yet, but, you know, many, many, many we do. And it, I guess my you know, you ju I juxtaposed it with, so I, I, I read this proposition and of course it's, it's absolutely resonates, but you know, we evolved eating these compounds. <laughs> it's like, it's, right. it's just mind blowing that we would sort of forget that, you know, in the face of progress. Absolutely. I, I you? go could, ahead. Couldn't, no, couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, and I think, you know, hopefully with, 
certainly with you putting energy behind uh, shaping the 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 uh, hopefully you know the the research agenda it's it, you know at, at some level so we start to look at these uh in more meaningful ways using these amazing tools that we have uh you know we'll begin to put evidence behind it and understand start to tease out um some of who these these players are i but i, I just want you to back up and say phytochemicals that's a that's a very broad term. Um, can you speak about them? Now we understand them as essential, although sort of largely ignored. Um, but you know, they're made from plants. I mean, what do they do? So they're they're yeah, they're. I mean, there are a lot of ways. There are a lot of things I can uh, riff on uh, from that question. I, I and there. Are, so let me try to answer your question directly, and then I'll wander. But. Um, what they do for the plant is they, I mean, they make the plant what you see. They, so phytochemicals are low molecular weight compounds, small molecules, if you will. Um, they are not proteins, they're not oils, fats, fiber, or what am I missing? Carbohydrates or nucleic acids. They're not the main things you hear about uh, as you know the essence of life. And, Indeed, you can survive, uh, or a young person can survive without any phytochemicals, maybe. I mean, I don't even know, but I, I suppose they can. Um, but phytochemicals are present in very, usually very, very low concentrations in plants, far less than 1% by, by weight, um, less than 0.1%, many of them. Um, and they're signaling molecules for the plant. Um, very importantly, they're defense molecules for the plant. And when I say defense, it, it, it could be, um, you know, an antibiotic effect, antifungal. Uh, it could be um, an insect repellent uh, effect. So an insect takes a bite out of a plant. It's got a taste that it doesn't like. It goes and eats some other plant. Um, and it... You know, could be an anti-desiccant response, or these could be compounds. These are compounds that, for example, make a plant attractive to pollinators. So it could, all of the essential oils are phytochemicals. Mm. They are actually present um, in fairly high concentrations compared to other phytochemicals. And many of them, as you're probably aware, are exuded on the glands of uh, leaves of plants. Um, anybody who's familiar with cannabis knows about essential oils. Um, they're not actually oils, lipids. They're, they're, they're unfortunately misnamed. But so they, they're involved with, with scents. They're involved with protection against ultraviolet radiation in plants. Um, and, uh, and then last but not least, uh, or it's not even last, but color. I mean, the color of right. a tomato, the color of you know, a leaf. Uh, even if we discount chlorophyll, which is really a phytochemical, all of the accessory pigments that make plants the colors they are. So I, I've, you know, I've mentioned a lot of types of compounds, um, and we can dive deeper into that if you'd like. But um, interestingly, uh, I think you repeated the the word dark matter, or, or if not, let me mention it in the paper. <laughs> of ours that you mentioned we we actually quoted someone else we didn't invent that term but i absolutely love it calling phytochemicals the dark matter of nutrition 
there's a, a, a very well published, very highly respected uh, group uh, who I think sort of initially made that call. Um, and they estimated, this is by, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, Barabasi and Laszlo, I believe, are the, the, the main authors, um, did a piece in 2020. And Tom and I, Tom Kensler and I, in our paper, <clears throat> excuse me, used their estimate of 50,000 phytochemicals um, that exist. And we deliberately used that because it was published in a, I think, Nature, um, it was published in a, in a in a high impact journal, it was a great paper of theirs. But most people, most phytochemists, and um, I think most people that really think about this, would estimate the actual number of phytochemicals at far, far more than that um, order, at least an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude, five to 10 million, some people have estimated. And, and when you, I mean, just pull up any picture of any plant or just look outside the window at the yeah. plants there. And I mean, you, it's not a far-fetched number. Well, can I just say that this has got to be in one way, I mean, this sort of answers the question on why there's a dearth of research and we've decided to ignore them. <laughs> you know, exactly. too much information, forget it. Tune yeah. It out. yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that we know that they interact synergistically and they're just there's itty bitty amounts and you know and we're we we come from drug model brains right just you know controlling a single variable you know and how do you do that you you it's just it's really challenging <laughs> i i think and so as you guys you know pose logically we have to just dive into these amazing tools we now have, you know, for broad and, and fast investigations and using AI and so forth. So we can get what we've evolved from. <laughs> I always find that amazing. So we can get the beauty of broccoli and, you know, why it's important. <laughs> well, I, first of all, yes, I agree with you. Um, and I want to talk to you about the AI side and the estimate of the, the high estimate of, of the number of phytochemicals. But from the perspective of what we're what we're doing, I mean, you can view that in two ways. If you're if you're dead set on eating a, a let's say a lousy diet and and eating all sorts of supplements, dietary supplements, then obviously uh, knowing what those supplements perhaps should be and and their bioavailability and toxicity and all that is very very important if you're going to refine them and put them in a pill. But the other side of that argument, and, and, and I think there's a place for dietary supplements, yeah. especially in, in, you know, with a Western lifestyle. And as one gets older and just can't get the, doesn't eat as much, doesn't exercise as much. I think the flip side though, is um, knowing how important any or all or some of these phytochemicals are uh, for various conditions should guide um, nutritionists and dietitians and other counselors and certainly physicians, um, naturopaths, medical doctors should guide them all to understanding more about how to eat healthy. And then, you know, I, I got my doctorate in nutritional biochemistry late in life. I 
got my PhD or it's an SCD doctor of science on the day that my son graduated from college when I was 50 years old. So oh, good for you. <laughs> um, well, so, um, it, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was late. Um, and I, and I haven't been in this game, uh, quite as long as some others, but, you know, I got my doctorate in the, in a school of public health and in the coursework that I was forced to take, I'm glad I did, um, I really got exposed to what happens in the rest of the world from a health perspective. And um, in most of the world, uh, whatever the, our population is now, it's you know the great percentage of the world, certainly the, the, the tropics, people don't take supplements. People can't yeah. afford it. People are lucky if they get enough food and get a, a varied diet. So I think an understand, and this this has come up again and again in the work I've done with Moringa, which is a tropical yes. nutritional tropical tree. I think understanding, you know, eat colors, the colors on your plate and all that is great in the West, but that's also great in, in the developing world, uh, so-called developing world, terrible term, but it, it's great in the parts of the world where people don't take supplements because it may enable us to guide people towards certain crops. I'm not expecting a panacea, but I mean, if they're eating one thing and, and suffering from nutritional deficiencies and there's something else that was viewed as a famine food or a weed that, that yeah. we, we learn uh, is useful to integrate into a diet, th there are things that humanitarian organizations and aid organizations and, and the Peace Corps and so on can do to help persuade people to eat slightly differently. It's, it's an uphill battle, but, um, but anyway, I, I just wanna make clear that all the work that goes towards understanding what phytochemicals can do to enhance health span does not have to lead to pills, to supplements, to um, nutritional supplements, um, but it can lead to ch slight changes or maybe major changes in, in dietary recommendations. Um, yeah, okay, that's a, I think that that's a, that's a great and important point. And I, I, I have a couple questions. I, I think I wanna just juxtapose what that looks like. So what would that look like here, eating in the West? What would you suggest our plate wants to, should, should appear like? And then, you know, I, I, I wanna talk about those tweaks that, um, you know, people in the Peace Corps, et cetera, or, you know, working with some of the, some of the um, less wealthy countries, you know, how they're advising them to tweak their diet and, and is Moringa playing a role in that? And I guess we should probably actually define Moringa in there uh, as well. So, um, yeah. you know, what's a good plate look like um, here? I, I would leave that to you and, and others. I mean, I'm not a dietitian. Um, but I think a good, you know, I think there are plenty of people who are giving recommendations for good plate, uh, what a good plate looks like. It, it's not a paleo diet, I don't think. It's, it's not any of the more faddish diets. I think it's a plant forward um, or predominantly plant diet and, and variety is I think really key. And I think all the advice about the colors, you know, eating for colors, eating different colors is good advice. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think fresh is good advice, eating fresh to the extent you can. Um, eating fresh um, and eating local, I think is, is great advice. And, you know, there are a lot of intersecting sort of needs and constituencies here, but I think eating local is good from perspective of sustainability, supporting local small farmers and so on and so forth. I just came back from the farmer's market. I live in mid coast, Maine. Um, and it's absolutely wonderful to be able to patronize um, local farmers who are growing vegetables. But, um, you know, being aware of how, how many food miles your, your food traveled is, is also yes. important. I think, I think being aware that phytochemical content actually um, can decline. Um, uh, and I don't have good data for this, but I think it, uh, it's partly intuitive as food is shipped and stored for weeks in, in, in a cold chain, whether it be from California or from you know, Peru or Mexico, um, when food was picked, you know, when lettuce was picked you know, two weeks ago, or uh, the, the list is long, um, I don't know that those are as rich in phytochemicals as they were when they were picked, because after all, a lot of phytochemicals are, are antioxidants we repurpose that function when we use them in our body, when we take them in our body, but because they're antioxidants, some of them actually get used up um, fighting the oxidative stress of a picked piece of produce or lettuce or, or tomato or whatever it may be. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wandering a bit, I realize, but um, I guess the, the, to sort of come back to what the plate should look like, the other huge piece that I'd like to stress is that, you know, and Michael Pollan and many other writers have done this better than, uh, more eloquently than I can, but stay away from the middle of the supermarket and as much as possible. And all of the boxed and highly preserved stuff is, um, you know, it is very likely contributing to the decline in health span and you know, there's one thing that we are quite sure of, and that's that um, there's usually a reduced, um, almost always reduced phytochemical content in things like packaged cereals and and you know pasta and things like that. Yeah. Um, there's also, based on the heat used for extrusion and processing and drying. There's also a very high load of things called advanced glycation end products or AGEs. And these are things I'm actually um, uh, on the board of a foundation called the Anti-AGEs Foundation, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and we're trying to make people aware of some of the dangers of these compounds um, in things like uh, bacon, for example, cooked bacon, they're extraordinarily high. Um, they can um, cause, they can accelerate things like cataracts. Um, it, it is advanced glycation end products or AGEs that you're measuring when you measure hemoglobin A1C um, in diabetes. They're a, probably a contributing factor to diabetes. Um, they're bad, they're, they're bad for you and they lead to um, decline in tissue functionality. Um, and they're very, they're, 
they're very widely present in highly processed foods, which is another reason to stick with as fresh a diet as you can. Um, if you live in Alaska or Maine, it's a little tougher. If you live in the Central Valley of California, I would think you could probably get away without any processed food. But um, I think you, hopefully you get the point there. Yeah. The yeah. I just, you know, you, in 2017, you published a piece um, in uh, John Hopkins Health Review. It's great. And we'll link to it because um, it's just, it's really, it's it, it outlines what you're, what you're just talking about now, it's titled Superfood or Super Hype, um, examining the prevalence and promise of nutrient-packed foods. So, you know, going back to the idea of, you know, the, 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 the miles that it takes for, you know, a, you know, sexy, popular superfood nutrient to travel from faraway country X to us. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, and, you know, and, 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 and likely we're losing the nutrient value during that journey, as you point out. Um, but also we're taking it from, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of messing with the other country, potentially, uh, what's going on over there and the fact that they need it. And so I want to, you can speak to that, but the other, I think, really important point you mentioned, and the fact that you just got back from your local uh, farmer's market, it, it is that there's plenty of superfoods right here, and we can access, you know, a fabulous variety of nutrients really pretty much anywhere, you know, in the U.S. Maybe the dead of winter in the far reaches of Alaska might be a little harder, you said, but by and large, you know, we can eat well with crops that are grown here or what we're growing in our yard or our local farmers, et cetera. So you just want to, you, do, do you want to speak to any of that? Sure, sure. I, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And, and so that, that opinion piece that you mentioned that I did a few years ago um, was, was, I loved having the chance to write that. And although it was, cha it was challenging to me because I actually helped a um, uh, at the at the beginning of um, its corporate lifespan. I helped a small company, which is now growing and thriving and doing beautifully, called Cooley Cooley, and they're they are selling moringa leaf powder and some products that include moringa in the American market, and they're selling it to people who obviously have disposable income to spend on cool, interesting, and different foods. And I think that's I think that's absolutely great. I help them get their get their um, uh, COA uh, into Whole Foods, and they started selling there. And I've been on their scientific advisory board ever since. Um, they actually source sustainably from a wide range of primarily women-owned uh, businesses and cooperatives in uh, primarily in Africa. Um, where the founder, Lisa Curtis, um, was in the Peace Corps and got sort of turned on to Moringa. But so I think that's all great. And I'm not, I'm not knocking uh, we rich compared to the rest of the world, Americans from uh, for, for eating all sorts of interesting superfoods. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Hi, this is Dr. Christy Hughes. I'm the Chief Medical Education Officer for Nutridyne. I've been working with them as my primary nutraceutical company since 1997. Why have I been choosing Nutridyne for these last couple decades? Well, it's because they're science-backed. They've got an amazing advisory board. Actually, those who are advising their formulas are some of my own teachers and mentors that I work with on an ongoing basis. 
They have a professional-grade line with incredibly predictable clinical results. Their formulas have helped me grow my practice, customize my own patient store, and I have depended on Nutridyne and their educational events for the last couple decades to support me in my own clinical growth. If you're not familiar with Nutridyne, go to Nutridyne.com. As a special offer, use our promo code, NEW2021, and you can take 30% off your first order. Can't wait to see you at some of our education events. Nutridyne.com. Now let's get back to this month's episode. I've had a battle with a number of people about the use of super, the term superfood, though, because I, 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 I guess I should say I used to hate it and I still don't like the term. Um, and, and it's because, as you say, uh, if you eat just about any fresh fruit or vegetable, I, I would call that a superfood and go to all the common stuff you see on the supermarket shelves, uh, on the produce shelves. And we could figure out what phytochemicals make them super. And the only one I'd probably, <laughs> I'd probably leave off my personal list is iceberg lettuce. I, I see very little redeeming value in iceberg lettuce, but I'm sure the <laughs> lettuce producers of Salinas Valley would kill me for saying that. Um, I, I just, it, it's, it's a lot of water and, and I don't think it's, particularly loaded with phytonutrients, but it's got a lot of fiber, so it's good for you. Um, so, you know, that, that said, um, sure, there are, there are foods that everybody calls superfoods. I was, I was trying to help. There was a woman who was putting together a documentary called Superfoods of the Western World. Um, she had National Geographic and Al Jazeera and other large media outlets funding uh, her, but I don't think it ever got done. But I was helping her construct a list of superfoods of the world um, because she insisted that as a producer, director, this was going to be her title. Um, so sure, I would put moringa on there. I'd put blueberries on there. I'd put broccolis on there. I'd put black raspberries on there. And, you know, it's a the list can just keep growing and growing, but then the the moniker of superfood also depends, I guess, on where you live. Um, yes. And then and then, hey, what do you know? It depends on your taste buds and what you like to eat. Yes. Why should you force feed yourself um, blueberries if you don't like the taste? So pick something else, right? Pick apples and tomatoes. Um. So, it, it, you know, it's. That's, it's I love it. <laughs> I, I, your definition of superfood is just perfect it's very liberating <laughs> and well, it's affordable <laughs> well you know i have i have a dear friend uh who who uh, start, started a, a sensory analysis company gail seville her, her company up in new jersey um does among other things taste taste testing for food products and you know she, we actually worked with her. I had a master student work with her uh, to develop some taste masking strategies for uh, broccoli sprout extracts that we were using in a clinical trial in clinical yes. trials in China and in um, Baltimore and in a few other places. And Gail, in her infinite wisdom, as we were talking about things, you know, things to eat, things to put uh, this powder in said and she says this to my class every year or has said it to my class every year she said if it doesn't taste good they won't eat it and so you know you 
try you label something as a superfood if it tastes like crap people aren't going to eat it if you have a clinical trial and you think everybody in that trial should eat um you know a giant bowl full of fresh broccoli sprouts well to most people that doesn't taste good so they're not going to eat it some people yes so um i mean i think sometimes as nutritional biochemists or nutritionists or dietitians i think sometimes we overlook the component of taste and, yes. and sensory input um we're not all the same and you know the better the better a food tastes the more likely you are to eat it of course it's a huge challenge to do that without dumping piles full of sugar and salt into it but it's very very doable we all also know that mm -hmm. yeah it well i'm thinking about sort of the you know the the, those folks who are sort of super tasters my sister puts herself into this category and, and can sort of if i'm eating if i'm eating some kale in connecticut she can taste that and have a negative reaction in ohio over the phone right <laughs> yeah over the phone Ooh, oh she was so upset that my daughter liked broccoli rob when she was a little peanut um oh god i love broccoli rob I do, I fried with a little garlic absolutely and a, and a lot of olive oil <laughs> yeah, yeah i love yeah, it too yeah, yeah. um but she and so i, I so i want to talk a lot a little bit about uh broccoli sprouts and i just mm -hmm. you know you put a lot of energy into um the nutrient value of of sprouts and just kind of cruciferous uh veggies in general and i want to talk a little bit about that the biochemistry of it but you know what do we do? i'm just curious how you would respond to my sister who doesn't even want to be in the same room with these um, should she get in there and sort of turn it into a pasta or add a lot of sugar like i mean are cruciferous would you say something that we can't get away from we've got to figure out how to eat even if we're super tasters <laughs> oh god oh that's a, that's <laughs> a challenge i know i i think probably not i mean uh, there are so many other vegetables to choose from i mean if you insist on forcing your sister to eat crucifers you could go to something like um maca or mashua andean tubers which have the same phytochemical, some of the same type of phytochemicals, glucosinolates, but they taste very much like a potato. Um, they don't taste like broccoli at all. Um, I, you know, I think it, it, it's it's interesting. Um, there, there's so many to choose from. I, I would be shocked if you had your sister look at all. I think there are six hundred different crucifers cruciferous edible cruciferous plants there's a huge number of them i'd be shocked if she couldn't find something that she liked but <laughs> but but it's interesting so i, I want to go back to the way you said something at the beginning of your question you said um i've spent i've invested a lot of time and energy in studying the nutrients and broccoli sprouts and I, I just wanted to call you out of that and say you're showing your prejudice, your educational and training prejudice in the same way that we all do. Because do should we call? So what we've studied is the glucosinolates and isothiocyanates in broccoli sprouts, and they are phytochemicals. So we get back mm. to that question of are phytochemicals nutrients? Should we call them phytonutrients, which a lot 
some people do. I actually had a paper with some USDA collaborators a long, long, long time ago, and phytonutrients was in the title, and I had to fight about it because I didn't like calling them phytonutrients. On the other hand, a lot of people, a lot of people in the more social space and nutritional counseling space, I think sh like to shy away from the word phytochemical because it connotes, you know, a lot of people when they hear the word chemistry, yes, they tune out and maybe, so maybe phytonutrients is a better term, but um, I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up, honestly, I, I, what the definition of a nutrient is, but I think it's something that's required for survival. Yes. And therefore, probably what we've studied in broccoli sprouts, meaning sulforaphane, um, is not required for a person's survival. It may be. Is it? It just, I, th I think that question needs to be answered. So I just looked it up as you were speaking, a substance that provides nourishment essential for growth and the maintenance of life. And this is from yeah. Oxford. Um, I just, yeah. I, yeah, so just I mean, I guess we maybe we need to define what growth and maintenance of life are, right? No, yeah. Well, it's. I mean, it's. A, yeah, it's a fuzzy I mean, survival area. survival versus yeah. you know, thrive. Yeah. Well. Well. Maybe. Maybe we're just what we're talking about now. Maybe what we're doing is making a, a good argument to to use the term phytonutrient instead of phytochemical yes. because. It, it, we think it's a nutrient in, in that it prolongs or it enhances health span, but it's a little different than a classic nutrient, obviously. So maybe, maybe phytonutrient is a good term. I, I, I don't know. Um, but you, you know, you started, you asked mm -hmm. me about a few many minutes ago now about what's on a, on a, a good plate. And I hope I, answer that to the best of my ability which is i don't know but <laughs> but plant plant heavy and uh certainly I, I i don't think we need to eat a lot of uh of um animal protein and i think as time goes on it's going to be harder to do that we can survive without it um i don't think it's all bad but i think when you start looking at cooking animal protein, most of it is cooked, except for sushi um, and shellfish. Um, you should be thinking also about the massive amounts of advanced glycation end products or AGEs that you're potentially adding into your, to your dietary intake, um, as well as all the other things that have been assigned to meat from sort of a negative, negative perspective. Um, but I, I don't, I'd rather not get into a vegetarian versus paleo versus sure. carnivore debate because um, there are others that will, you know, go at that debate yeah. <laughs> beautifully. You, I, I don't know if you've done a podcast with uh, opposing points of view on that, but I've heard a few years ago and seen some published debates that are it, very interesting reading. Um, I'm just right. not the person to do it. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know that the extremes, you know, really. Um, I don't. I think it's just. I think. I think that it's a little bit. It's not that. It's not that interesting to me. I mean, I, I like what you said. You described yourself as being a facultative vegetarian. I think at the intro, and I. I think that's that's pretty cool. That's that's fun. It's a fun use of the 
word facultative. Um, but I wanted, you know, I have a, I have a some liver sitting here in front of me. I don't need a ton of it, but um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a multivitamin and a food matrix, and so, you know, and you don't need a lot of it actually. You really don't to um, to get those benefits. So there's, I, I, I think there's a place for. Um, for animal protein, uh, that, that's my that's my current position. Mm -hmm. um, so why all your energy looking at broccoli? I mean, and and sprouts and so forth. And you know, what what did you kind of what was the wonder? What are the wonderment nutrients that were, you know, that you discovered and and really started to drill down? So um, th this started back in the. Um, Excuse me. When I was in, in industry before I came to Hopkins in 1993, I was actually working on the development of broccoli cultivars by um, uh, anther culture, culturing the anthers of the plant in tissue culture. So I was sort of tuned into broccoli. And, and then I, I responded actually to a uh, a posting uh, of a job that Paul Talalay had had made, and he's a revered and esteemed um, enzymologist who was the chairman of the pharmacology department at Hopkins and um, had gone back to a faculty position um, when he recruited me. Um, and he and Yushin Zhang, a medical medical student at the time, had just rediscovered sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is a, a phytochemical present in broccoli. And they found very small amounts, but they also found that it upregulated the so-called, at the time they were called phase two enzymes. They're still called that, but they're essentially a, a suite of, or a large group of cytoprotective enzymes, meaning they protect cells against damage. And that protection comes in the form of antioxidant protection, um, as well as they're, they're anti-inflammatory. Um, there's an um, immune regulating function, immune support. Um, it, over the years, it's been learned that there's mitochondrial um, support. I'm using deliberately a very loose sort of supplement industry type term. Um, but I mean, there are a lot of subtleties about the biochemistry that people know now. But back then, it was the discovery was sulforaphane upregulates phase two enzymes, they're protective, they're antioxidant. Wow. And so Paul brought me on to find better broccoli. Well, in the winter in, in the middle of Baltimore, on the 13th floor of a hospital, it was sort of hard to uh, grow broccoli year round. And although we did have something like 10 sites on the Eastern shore of Maryland, um, when winter came, I obviously didn't have a ready supply of broccoli and we started going, going small and going uh, local. So wow. I started gr growing broccoli seeds in the lab and discovered long and short of it that broccoli sprouts were a much more potent source of not actually sulforaphane, but it's precursor, which is very stable. It's called glucoraphanin, and it stays in the plant and is mobilized when the plant's chowed down on by insects or people. When cells are broken, 
or when it's penetrated by a fungal hypha or you know bacterial yeah. lesion um, and then it activates within through an enzyme that's also in those plant cells called myrosinase it it converts to sulforaphane very quickly and sulforaphane is bactericidal um, and, and it's a defense compound and it upregulates actually antioxidant enzymes in the plant so that's what was known back then and simultaneously in fact in 1997 when we published our sprout paper our first sprout paper in the pnas there was a seminal paper done by a group in japan uh, masi yamamoto and ken ito uh, and a whole group of investigators at um, tsukuba university in tohoku uh, university and they linked this compound, this nuclear transcription factor called NRF2. Mm -hmm. um, they linked its function with this. It was sort of the key to upregulation of these, these what we called cytoprotective enzymes. Um, and they showed, they, they sort of seeded the field that, that now over the past 25, 30 years ha has really mapped out how this nuclear transcription factor works to be protective and sulforaphane activates it. I won't go into the details, but sulforaphane, it turns out is the major, the, the most potent activator of this response. Um, just to march back to those early days um, when I started my work with Paul uh, Talley at Hopkins, um, back then our focus was almost entirely on cancer protection protection against cancer um many at hopkins and all elsewhere were of course studying therapy and the, some therapeutics for some cancers had been developed but the concept that you could protect against a wide variety of cancers um by something that could be introduced in the diet was was very very novel and this is Paul's idea, not mine, um, but I bought into it hook, line and sinker. And so our focus was on protection against future development of cancer. And sulforaphane clearly in a whole sorts of, all sorts of models uh, was effective in that, in that sense. Um, and we even named the center that um, we developed the the chemo protection center. Right. That's a sort of sort of unfortunate choice of words because chemo protection really is associated with cancer and with 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 drugs and cancer. Yeah. But be that as it may, over the years, as this NRF two signal mechanism, uh, as knowledge of it evolved, and our knowledge of this glucosinolate, this glucoraphanin sulforaphane system of phytochemicals evolved. Um, we and others started looking at the efficacy of sulforaphane in a variety of other chronic conditions other than cancer, including things like autism, where there now are, I think, about eight clinical trials that we and others have, have done. Um, so a lot of neurodevelopmental, neurodegenerative conditions are, are in the crosshairs, um, some autoimmune conditions, diseases of the eye, diabetes. I mean, the list is essentially the list of 
um, of, of chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost all of them respond in, uh, to some degree or another to, um, or are, are, I should say the, the development of them uh, has oxidant stress uh, and inflammation in, the, in their, their pathophysiology or their, their developmental progression. So let me shut up again, um, take a breath. Yeah. So are you, so at least some of these studies are using supplements or all of them? At at least some of them are. Um, Yeah, you're, you're, that's correct. When we started doing these sorts of clinical studies, um, we did some studies in China where we actually used fresh, we grew fresh broccoli sprouts, we made hot water extracts of them, and the subjects drank those hot water extracts that were that contained glucoraphanin. Um, it is incredibly difficult to do studies like that. And, and I should say those were liver cancer and air pollution prevention studies and very interesting results, uh, successful. Um, it's an, it's incredibly difficult to do those sorts of studies. It's easier to do them outside of the U.S. only because people outside of the U.S. aren't so fixated on taking handfuls of pills every morning, noon, and night for mm. whatever ails them. Um, in this country, uh, it, 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 it's very difficult. Uh, to, it would be very difficult to do a study, certainly with fresh broccoli sprouts and 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 or with an extract and so we did switch to homemade supplements meaning that i actually went back and forth across the country many many times to oregon freeze dry biggest freeze drying plant in the world i believe Um, and we boiled broccoli sprouts and freeze dried them and made them into capsules or sachets that were used in the dosing of clinical studies Um, And then the nutritional supplement world uh, after 1994, especially in the um, Deshay, started coming out with uh, broccoli containing or or supposedly sulforaphane or glucoraphane containing supplements. And long story short on that, Paul and I and his son started a company to sell broccoli sprouts as a protective food, it had to evolve away from fresh broccoli sprouts for a lot of reasons, including foodborne contamination risks that were perceived and and some of which were real. The company started making a a broccoli sprout extract rich in glucoraphanin and knowing, and I backed away from the company then to continue at Hopkins, but knowing that they had a responsibly produced product and having seen how the analyses were done all the time. Um, I guided our, some of our clinical trials to, to use uh, supplements that I knew, I at least knew the contents of which um, going into the study. And of course we analyzed them, but it, it turns out to be and this, your question was a leading question, I suppose, but it turns out to be much easier to do those trials with pills or mm-hmm. gel caps or tablets. So with supplements, perhaps drinks, but um, you have to disguise the, 
you know, making a placebo is very difficult in these studies. And you want to have a placebo that fakes people out. You don't want people um, knowing that they're on treat treatment of placebo. I got to ask you this before yep. you before we talk about placebos. <laughs> yep. But I, I mean, can you speak to uh, I mean, there's a lot of products out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can and and we're not beholden to, um, you know, CME. So you can, you could speak to brands if you're comfortable. I mean, I'm curious yeah. what you think is reasonable because people. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, and I'm happy to do that now that I'm now that I'm you know, that I'm, I'm not uh, doing clinical trials as a PI at, at Hopkins. Um, so there are a lot of products out there. There are a lot of terrible products that don't have what they say they have in them. And in fact, before I left Hopkins on the Chemo Protection Center website, I was going to start, we had analyzed a lot of these products and I was going to start outing them. And I was going to make a list of uh, sort of demonstrating with third-party assays, you know, who had what. Um, and the Hopkins lawyers wouldn't let me do it. Um, they, shut, they shut that down um, because they didn't want, you know, they didn't want to get involved, I suppose, in lawsuits with those whom one of the experts uh, or the expert labs said uh, was garbage. Um, so we didn't do that, but um, I can tell you that the company we started is Brassica Protection Products, and it makes a product called TrueBroc, T-R-U-E-B-R-O-C. Um, and that product is not sold direct to consumers, except in, a, in some tea and coffee products that are on their website. They sell to supplement companies. So, and, and they actually, they have posted on their website a list of the supplements that they are in. And so, yeah, and so it's, it, it's so going to that list online will allow you to see where they are. And I can tell you that, com that companies that I've worked with on clinical trials, in other words, whose products, which contain TrueBrock, we've used in the clinic are Thorns, Crucera, it's called Crucera SGS, and I think they have it in some yep. other products. Um, and uh, Zymogen, has a product uh, that contains it. Um, Nutramax has a product called Avmacol, um, which uh, has TrueBrock in it. And I mean, so the TrueBrock powder is 13% glucoraphanin by weight. And I know that, and I've, I've, I'm now consulting for them now that I've left Hopkins. Um, and I, I know that you know, all of their lots have at least that much in them. And so they sell them to the supplement okay. companies and the supplement companies, some of them just encapsulate them and give them a funky name, uh, trade name. Some of them combine them with other ingredients and, and there it gets a little bit more dicey, meaning <laughs> we're getting smart enough as scientists to know how to measure the effects of multiple phytochemicals together. But for most of the time I was working in this area, we weren't smart enough. It was, and you know, it's it's doable with two compounds. You start trying to assess the uh -huh. efficacy and and overlapping effects of three or four or five phytochemicals, and it really gets difficult. And some of these products have 
not the ones I just mentioned, but some of them have many, many, many phytochemical and mushroom components. So and if it's just, and if it's a proprietary blend, you don't really know that you're hitting a therapeutic amount, I would imagine. Right. You know, many you times, just don't. Yeah. many times you don't. And, and it's, and we still, we, you know, we have good guesses on a, an appropriate dose. If you want to use the term dose, mm -hmm. As soon as sure. you use the term dose, you start thinking drugs and, and not phytochemicals, but that's how, uh, if you're talking about a supplement, you have to think that way because you, you at least, I mean, you can't keep people from swallowing, uh, you know, 20, if the recommendation is take two, but you have to do something to let people know that they could take too much. And interestingly, and this is where we go back to fresh food. You're not going to overdose on sulforaphane by eating broccoli, right? And just just like you're not going to overdose on, uh, well, I mean, you, you there is a self-limiting, um, uh, it's not disgust, it's fullness, it's satiety. Yeah. Um, or of course, in the case of your sister, it is disgust. But um, for people who like something like broccoli, you're not going to... Uh, you're not going to, if you eat too much one day, you won't eat it for another week, or maybe you'll never eat it again. So, um, but yeah, when you put these things, concentrate them and put them in supplements, we do have to worry about dose. Well, so I, it, unfortunately we have to, <laughs> we have to wrap up, but this is a really interesting conversation. I mean, what would be the suggested amount? I'm looking at the Thorns Crucera, which is I think 100% this Trubot component um and it's 50 milligrams in a cap i mean what is your research you know borne out as a recommended amount well it gets very complicated and it depends on whether it's co-delivered co with myrosinase that assists oh, in mm -hmm. conversion but i think with the um i think 50 50 to 100 milligrams uh 50 to 100 milligrams a day is is very reasonable of glucoraphanin. I mean, I would go with the, the if you're looking at their website, I would look at what their recommendation is. And I think it's probably two capsules a day. And all of those supplement companies err on the, on the, the low side, I think, mm -hmm. because they don't want people doubling or tripling and, and winding up with too much. Um, you know, there are, um, there are very few concerns about interactions, but the, you know there are drug interactions that one should always be concerned uh, about. So when people are taking drugs and supplements, uh, I mean the um, Coumadin and blood thinners and vitamin K are right. a classic example, and grapefruit juice and and cytochrome uh, uh, cytochrome uh, induction. Mm -hmm. uh, is another uh, changing the metabolism of some drugs with, with uh, cytochrome, I guess it's inhibition by grapefruit juice, but yeah, I can't yeah. remember. So it's a, it's a sort of, it's a sort of gray area, but I, I would go with the recommendations that the supplement companies give if you get a responsibly sourced supplement and uh, Carrie, you probably know better than I do. And I know our, our mutual friend, Chris Dadamo is, lectured for my class on this, but there are, there are ways, there are websites you can go to and there are ways you can assess the quality of nutritional supplements, dietary supplements. Um, 
and yep. get a little better feeling. Um, so I'd leave that to people like you to make recommendations on. But yeah, and and so just just to one one other point, I, I I'm also consulting for a, a company called Food Nerd, and they've taken a very interesting and sort of unique approach. They're saying we're going to minimally process fresh fruits and vegetables and make them into shelf stable products. And that turns out to be extraordinarily difficult to do, um, but they've done it. Um, And so they have products that are very low in AGEs um, and that are, that retain most of the phytochemical wallop that the original fruits and vegetables that went into them had but yet they're shelf stable. So they don't have to be refrigerated. They don't have to be used within a week or two or three days. Um, and I've been helping them. Uh, and, and it's, I, 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 you know, I hope they do well. They're in, in fundraising now and, and uh, sort of in the pilot, the early stages. But, you know, this approach may help us, I, I hope, um, sort of sidestep to a degree, this issue that a lot of people just won't load their plates with fruits and vegetables. Well, if they can put some of this in a bowl with milk, um, it, I think it will be, I think it'll be very positive for uh, improving otherwise cruddy diets. Um, it's a <laughs> negative way to put my positive feelings about that, what this company's doing, but, and they're using sprouts almost exclusively as the source of, uh, uh, as the primary ingredients of their cereals and, and uh, energy packs and things like that. Um, are you, are you growing, are you still growing sprouts at home or are you? Yes. All the time I grow sprouts and I drink Moringa tea. Um, yeah. And I grow all sorts of sprouts uh, and I'm, I'm, I, will I say I'm, I'm better for it? I have more energy, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good for me. Yeah. Well, Jed, it was just a really delight to be able to talk to you. And I, I would love to keep going. I've got, I've got more questions for you. So maybe we'll do a round two at some point, but I just want to say, I appreciate your, your, your mission and, and that you're getting out there and really trying to put uh, phytochemicals or, or phytonutrients into the mind of, of all of us and, you know, perhaps changing some of the you know, the, 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 you know, government-based nutrient paradigms that, um, that are missing it. I mean, I think it's time for a change and, and, and I hope that you, uh, can kind of, can spearhead that and we'll, we'll support you. We got your back. <laughs> well, well, thank you. And, and likewise, I, I encourage what you're doing. I mean, I think it, as you know, it's extraordinarily difficult to get, the message to people who are resistant to hearing it. And I'm sure you have a constituency that wants to hear what you have to say. Um, in some cases, you're probably preaching to the choir. And, and then and in other cases, you run into a brick wall. And I don't know how to get past that brick wall. But if some of us don't, or, or all of us don't figure out how to do it, as, as we all know, the healthcare system is, is, is going to tank. That's right. And our health is collectively is just getting worse and worse yes and the and the unfortunate thing about that i know you wanted to talk about this 
I suspect you wanted to talk about it, but we didn't get to it, is the whole issue of epigenetics and multi-generational effects. Sure. And that's going to start to be seen based on crappy diets. Yes. Um, so that's awful. Um, yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's an all hands on deck, you know, however yeah. we want to pick the ball up and go with it there. It, it's a conversation that has room for all of us to be engaging in, in whatever way we're, we're called to. And, and I, I, you know, and I just appreciate, I just appreciate your, you know, kind of putting your arms around phytochemicals and, and moving that forward. So again, thank you so much. And, and I'm sure, um, We'll get to continue in one form or another this conversation actually before before we go and again on your show notes i just want to mention that we're we'll have your website which is packed with information and that's just it's your name jed uh j-e-d-f-a-h-e-y.com and you've got a book coming out just tell me what the title is um <laughs> Well, I, I am unfortunately far from uh, being finished with it. Um, it is a work in progress, but there are too many other exciting things to do, and and I haven't uh, got it. Progress. Um, healthspan colon not not c o l o n, but punctuation colon healthspan colon squaring off the quality of life curve uh, is a working title, but um, oh, I love I, it. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see yeah. how it evolves. Maybe I'll get you to help me co-write it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, th thank you for your kind words. Yeah, we need to we need to end this on a positive note. So let me let me leave you with a, a, a saying. My my new friend, Doug Evans, who wrote The Sprout Book, which is a, a really interesting book. Um, it was just published a year or so ago. He ends every miss every email message with have the best day ever. Um, so Kara, have the best day ever. And to your listeners, thanks so much for uh, being with us. Yeah. And right back at you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.